like I said, this morning we come to a deep and complex truth about God that has caused many conundrums throughout the ages, I mean, for thousands of years. And yet, as I began thinking about how to approach this topic of God's sovereignty, I had a thought that occurred to me over and over. While there are things about God's sovereignty that are difficult, at its core, it is very, a very simple reality. It's our objections and our wonderings about it that make it complex. And I'm not an expert or a philosopher, so, and I couldn't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with all the theological heavyweights, but I am a Christian with a Bible, and there's lots of good resources. It might be a temptation for us to think about things about God that are difficult and give up before we even begin. And Steve and I were talking about this as I just started studying, and he, he told me that he thinks people need to wrestle with God's sovereignty much more than they do. Um, we won't nail it ever, in our, but um, growing in our understanding has huge life implications for us. So as we begin, let's just define what sovereignty in general means. Sovereignty means supreme power and authority. Some, some of its synonyms are dominion and reign. We're familiar with what it means to be sovereign in the world as we see politics and governments. A sovereign is a king. A sovereign nation or state has one centralized government or ruling authority over a certain geographical area. When we talk about God being sovereign, it's similar. However, there is a big difference. We're not talking about a monarchy because even the kings of this world answer to God who is the king of kings. But also it's worth noting that we might have an even harder time grasping this concept because we are used to democracy. We have a representative nature to our government. Um, if we don't like something, we have the ability to complain or to vote or to make our voices heard, and we do have some rights. Um, but God's rule is not a democracy. God's rule is a theocracy. He alone is the supreme ruler. And God does rule over a geographical area everywhere. The heavens, yes. The earth, yes. And even hell. There's not a creature, atom, time, or place where God is not the supreme power or authority. Who gave God this power? He's always had it. It's in his being. Eternally, God rules and reigns. And if you're like me, you might think of eternity as something more of in the future. Um, for example, like eternal life that comes after we pass through death, but that's not the true definition of eternal, or it's not the whole definition of eternal. Eternal means lasting or existing forever without beginning or end. In 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Peter speaks of entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen in our Luke's sermon series that Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God to earth. This is an eternal kingdom without beginning or end. The kingdom has only one ruler, God. He always has and he always will rule. Here are just a few verses that express this. Psalm 145.13 says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. 
Um, Daniel 4, 3 says, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And Daniel 7, 14 says, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It's not enough for us to define sovereignty generally. We must define the sovereign one. When we consider the supreme power and authority that God has, we must remember all the aspects of his character. How can God have so much power and authority without being a tyrant, an oppressive dictator, an abuser, or just an angry king that's just reacting to everything? That's our frame of reference in a world that's ruled by men. God is not a man. Let's think about that based on what we've learned so far just in this He Is series that we've been doing. God is immutable, so he is never reacting to anything. He doesn't change. God is holy, so everything he does is pure and without taint of sin. God is good, so everything he does must be good. And there are many attributes we haven't dived into yet in Sovereign Grace Women, but things that we already know, like um, God is loving, God is just, and God is merciful, just to name a few. These all factor into our sovereign one. He doesn't rule apart from all of his attributes working together. I thought of this analogy. Um, I work at Whole Foods, and as a company, I really appreciate the six values that they operate out of. This is what they strive for, to sell the highest quality natural and organic foods, satisfy and delight their customers, promote team member growth and happiness, practice win-win partnerships with their suppliers, create profits and prosperity, and care about communities and the environment. Every decision has to align with each of those values. If something came up that would mean more profit, but it would harm the environment or communities, they wouldn't do it. If it doesn't benefit the farmer, they won't do it. If it's detrimental to the team members, they won't do it. Every decision has to be filtered through every value, and only if it works for all the values will they do it. And this analogy breaks down, of course, because it involves humans who can't perfectly see the big picture, and, and though they endeavor to do business this way, and I think it's admirable to do so, ultimately, this plan is fallible. But God is infallible. And like the analogy, he has particular attributes and must be true to himself. He must uphold his love and his wrath at the same time. He must be good and holy equally. He must rule out of every one of his characteristics and he would not make a decision that is not consistent with all of who he is. Whom does he rule and reign over? All that he has made, angels, Men and women, the natural world, weather, seasons, every single thing. What existed before God created the world? God. Therefore, everything that is not God is ruled by him because they were created by him and for him. The take-home verse that you have that Jackie painted for us is from Acts 4.24. 
the early believers are experiencing persecution and they're being charged not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus, the response from the early church is to lift up their voices together to God and say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They recognized that God was the sovereign one because he was the maker of all things. There is something that's often referred to as the creator-creature distinction. God is creator, we are his creatures. I love the lyrics to the first song we sang, the Lord is a mighty king. The Lord is a mighty king, the king of all nations, nations, the maker of everything. Let his handiwork, that's us, say, I am his, I am his, creator owns creation. See what power there is in the sovereign who reigns. God's answer to all of Job's questions about the disaster that had come upon him, his answer is essentially this. Where were you when I made everything? I can almost hear Job's thoughts. Oh yeah, you're God and I'm not. You get to do what you please and I get to recognize that you have that right but also I get to trust that you're wise and do all things for my good. At the end of Deuteronomy, God instructs Moses to write a song as a witness against the Israelites. God has seen and known their treason against him. The song is, will be sung to future generations to instruct them and remind them to keep God in their hearts as the only God. Here are a few lines from the song. From verse six, do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Or verse 15, but Jerusalem grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. Verse 18, you were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the, the God who gave you birth. This song of Moses is a kind warning from God. In a very real sense, he is saying, know your place. Know to whom you owe all things. This is a witness against them. But if you read the whole song, you also see the invitation he gives and a promise to be with them through all things. The psalmists were able to hold this tension of God having absolute freedom to do as he pleases and yet be for, be for them simultaneously. Consider these verses. And this, this was written in the midst of turmoil and problems in this psalmist's life. And he says, this I know, that God is for me. Um, Psalm 56, 9. And then in Psalm 56, one, sorry, Psalm 115, 2 and 3, it says, Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. If we be, believe this to be true, it's simple enough. God rules the world. He rules us. And we bow under his authority. Simple enough, right? He controls all things. We don't. He knows all things, we don't. He has the power to direct all things, we don't. In humility, we acknowledge that he is the creator and we are his creatures. 
Steve talked about this foundational reality in his sermon on Luke 20. His first point was that we must grasp that we belong to God, and in response to that reality, we must render ourselves to him. God is our king, and he's not just our king, but he is the king of kings and lord of lords. In 1 Timothy 6.15, he is described this way. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and the lord of lords. He is king over the subjects that comply, and he is king over the subjects that rebel. There are two categories, king and king subjects. There are no outliers that are somehow neutral. There is God and there is everything else. God is not one of us. He is completely other, as we talked about when we considered his holiness. He's completely unique. We bear his image, but we are not God or little gods. We'd like to be, wouldn't we? Um, no, we don't want the responsibility of directing the affairs of the whole world, but we sure would like to direct our own affairs or the affairs of those around us. We sometimes elevate our thoughts to the place that we think we know better than God what is best for us, for our families, our country, or any other thing that concerns us, but we don't have omniscience, knowledge about everything, including the hearts of all people. We don't have foreknowledge, knowledge about how everything will play out. We also don't have perfect knowledge about all that has happened before our time. We only know in part. We see dimly, yet we dare to think that we see very clearly. We make definitive statements about people, places, or things. We say things like, they will never change. This place is beyond hope, or this thing will never come about. Have you ever entertained those thoughts? What do they have in common? They are godless thoughts. They don't take into consideration that God is sovereign and that he is ruling. They don't have the but God factor. Here's perhaps the clearest but God in scripture. Keep in mind, this is Paul writing to the Ephesians and he's writing to a church, believers. So this applies to us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. What hope of change was there for any of us without God? Absolutely none. That same chapter, in that same chapter, Paul tells us, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. As those who have been saved by God, there is always hope because of God, 
particularly because we belong to him, not just in the sense that he owns everything, but in the special sense that he's made us alive together with Christ. The answers to our doubts is to remember that he rules us because he made us. We must take care to remember the picture God gave us in his word. He is the potter, we are the clay. Isaiah 64, 8 says, But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. It is his prerogative to do what he wants with what he has made. Why does that make us feel unsettled? At least for me typing it, it made me feel unsettled. It points out to me that I'm not in control of my life, and I so very desperately want to have control. This is one of many places that biblical theology is so helpful. When we understand the overarching story of the Bible, of which we are a part, then we begin to grasp that we were not made to have our own little kingdoms. We were made for his kingdom, a kingdom that is not tied to any country of this world. It's without borders and the only truly righteous kingdom. He has redeemed us for his own glory, or as Ephesians 1 puts it, for the praise of his glory. We exist for him. He does not exist for us. That should not be so hard to swallow, but so often it is. And why is that? I think in part it's because we like to impose what we know from the world onto God. People in this world who are out for their own glory are ruthless, merciless, powerful, power-hungry egomaniacs. And the question may come to our minds, uh, is God like that? To answer that question, consider what brings God glory according to his word as we read it. He is glorified when he redeems people. He is glorified when he blesses people. He is glorified when he heals people. He is glorified when people love him and love each other. He is glorified when his people show mercy to others. He is glorified in generous giving. He is glorified in hospitality. He is glorified by our gratitude. He is glorified by our kindness. He is glorified when we fight sin. He is glorified by our growth. He is glorified when we share his good news. He is glorified when we are humble. He is glorified when we pass through death to live with him forever. He is glorified when good triumphs over evil. He is glorified when we live for him and do all things unto him because he is the giver of life. And as Pastor Kale so beautifully preached last Sunday, he freely gave himself as our Passover lamb. This is a sacrificial serving kind of God. And yes, he is glorified when he shows wrath, just wrath on those who reject him as their king, but he would not be true to his just nature if he did otherwise. That's why even those things that are harder for us are still things that glorify him. They display his perfect nature. God is ruler. God can do as he pleases. God controls all things. All things exist for his glory. Phew. Here is one way out of many that we struggle to understand. 
Does that mean that we are just his puppets? Does that mean we have no will of our own? Does that mean we have no real choices in life? There are whole books on this topic that may be beneficial to read, but here's just something very simple that I read um, in, recently in God's Word. The Israelites were just about to enter the promised land. Mo Moses is going over God's commands one last time before he dies. He gets to the point at the end of his reminder where he speaks of God's amazing blessings on them if they are careful to obey all of God's commands. Here's just a sampling from Deuteronomy 28, 3 through 6. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. And there's more than that, but even in just what I read, doesn't that sound wonderful? It truly is. And then he says this later in that chapter, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, cursed shall you be in the field, Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. And there's more, much more. But you can hear the opposites just in those two chunks that I read you. The Hebrew nation is given a choice and it's a true choice. God's warning of what awaits those who rebel him by disregarding his rules is a merciful warning. Yet we know how that story went. They did not obey, and all of the things that were said would befall them if they did not obey actually did happen to them. The Bible speaks today, which I often find to be a helpful Old Testament commentary, says this, God had taken the initiative. He had made his choice by setting his love upon the Hebrews as his covenant people. But each individual Israelite was also compelled to make their de decisive choice as well. This unfortunate catalog of woe is intended as a serious warning device after the style of threats which concluded every ancient Near Eastern treaty. There was nothing remotely inevitable about them. If the Israelite people kept the covenant, they would be choosing life, not death, blessing, not curses. In A.W. Pink's excellent little book, The Attributes of God, he speaks of a conditional footing that God places Adam on. He chose to put him in Eden on the basis of creature responsibility so that he stood or fell according as he measured up or failed to measure up to his responsibility and his responsibility was obedience to his maker. He goes on to say, God did not place Adam upon a footing of conditional creature responsibility because it was right he should so place him. And I want you to listen carefully here. He says, no, it was right because God did it. God did not even give creatures being because it was right for him to do so because he was any, under any obligation to create, but it was right because he did so. God is sovereign, 
His will is supreme. So far from God being under any law of right, he is a law unto himself so that whatever he does is right. And woe be to the rebel that calls his sovereignty into question. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioned it, what makest thou? Do you hear what he's saying there? Basically, because God is sovereign and whatever he does is right, he can give man the free will to choose. It's the right thing to do because he did it. Again, biblical theology is important to grasp um, because the, the, in the whole message of the Bible, we read, what does man do with his free will? Over and over, do they choose God? Over and over, we see that mankind is inclined to choose sin, to choose other gods, to choose self instead of bowing before the king. The Bible tells us that no one is without sin. And what is sin but choosing to be ruled by something other than God? It romanticizes humankind to think that we would choose God of our own free will. Adam and Eve had the most favorable circumstances of any other people to come yet they chose to rebel against God. Why would we think that now, that we, now being surrounded by sin and having sin dwell in us because of Adam, would choose differently? Only God's sovereign act of saving us, of giving us a will that desires him and giving us new hearts is our hope. So yes, we do have free will, but thanks be to God that he steps in and changes the wills of those he chooses and does he have the right to choose? Is he sovereign or not? And believe me, at this point, I'm well aware of how much deeper we could go into this topic. I mean, the whole topic of God's sovereignty, which is why we're gonna be giving away some copies of this book, The Sovereignty of God by A.W. Pink. It was first written in 1930. And I think you will find Pink to helpfully explain through scripture about God's sovereignty and some of the questions that we have, many of which I'm not even mentioning today. His writing is pretty easy to understand and I have 10 copies to give away, which means almost everybody here will get one. Um, but I'm also putting one into our Sovereign Grace Women's Library in the back in the hospitality room. We have a small library of top books with topics that we've covered, so you can always um, check it out there if you don't get one. I just want to encourage you, not everybody's a reader, but um, I would encourage you that time learning about God, reading about who God is, is always well spent, and uh, he really does help make this uh, topic understandable. So I wanna just finish up today by talking a little bit about how a firm grasp on the attributes of God, the attribute of God's sovereignty works out practically in our lives. Do you ever feel anxious? Perhaps you fear something that might happen or things from your past cause you to fear the present. Perhaps you don't like the feeling of being out of control. Is God your maker? Is God your king? Has God saved you? 
Do you trust in Jesus Christ who paid the penalty of your rebellion against the king? Then really, what need you fear? Bad things that happen to us are not out of God's control. One of my favorite Bible passages is in the last chunk of Matthew chapter 6. It's very familiar to all of you, I'm sure. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." Jesus so gently tells his followers not to be anxious. Why? Because God is our Father and he values us. As you look at the examples he gives of birds being fed and lilies of the field growing beautifully, you see that this is the work of a sovereign creator. Anxiety is for those who don't belong to God. But those who belong to God have this promise. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. All of what? In this passage, he's specifically talking about food, hydration, and clothing, basic necessities of life. Without these, we could not last very long. Do you hear his kindness here? He's saying that your very life is in his hands. So it's not just about those basic necessities. He's saying your life is in his hands, starting with the things that, the very things that keep you alive and even beyond. What should concern you? Seeking his kingdom, living for him, the king. He will take care of the rest. He knows what you need. And as the sovereign king, he has the power to provide it. Trust him. Now, I was recently reading a blog post of a writer that I follow named Sarah Clarkson, and she was describing some things that had been going on in her life lately. Her circumstances were difficult for her, and she talked about how her battle with a mental illness, namely OCD, affected her. And these are real issues. People struggle with mental illness that can amplify fear. I listened to a podcast with a biblical counselor talk about OCD earlier this year, 
And I realize that I struggle with some of that myself to some extent, particularly when it comes to having an invasive thought that comes in and is very difficult to get rid of. And the answers don't come from outside of God's rule of the world. I've found this to be true in my life. There is a battle, and it's a battle for faith. Here's what Sarah had to say about her own struggle. In the weeks leading up to Lucy's birth, I often argued with God. This pregnancy was harder than the others, and by the end, I just wanted to be finished. I was convinced she'd come early after the strenuous months and the lockdown loneliness, and when she didn't, I felt almost betrayed. I also yearned for her coming to be accomplished because my OCD was particularly bad this time. I couldn't shake the feeling that something bad would happen to me during her birth, and though I knew quite well that this was a symptom of mental illness, I didn't know how to defeat it until the birth was safely over. Until one day when I snatched five minutes to read my Bible and came upon the psalm that describes a king asking life of God who granted it. How kind, how straightforward. I read that and suddenly, as I stared out at the afternoon sky, glancing between the leaves with those words echoing my heart, I knew an abrupt and vast sense of possibility as something clicked into place within my heart. What a wondrous thing that I could do the same as the psalmist, that I could ask God to protect my life with every confidence that he'd hear me. I could ask him for the things that I ached for most. I could trust him to respond with graciousness. The heart of OCD fear is the sense that nothing is really safe and bad things are inevitable. The heart of faith, I learned in that moment, is to trust that everything is safe in the hands of a benevolent, generous God who invites me simply to ask for what I both desire and need. That knowledge, that sense of confidence in God who is and the surety of his kindly will has been a strong arm around me in the past few days. I love the expression that she uses, God's kindly will. It's not to say that God does everything we ask, but it is the belief that God is gracious and kind in all his ways. One of the first verses that I quoted this morning had, to do, had this to say right after saying that God had dominion over all things. It said, the Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. What sweet assurance of the character of our sovereign God just after I read that, I picked up a devotional that I use as part of my morning routine, and I read this referring to Philippians 1.13, when Paul speaks of his imprisonment for Christ. That may mean the same thing as being in chains for Christ, but it also means a lot more. It means that your whole life's plan is being fulfilled by that chain around your wrist, because that's Christ's chain. You're not just here for Christ, but being in Christ. You have been brought to this place of weakness for a particular purpose. Your identity as a Christian is that you have believed Christ and now belong to him. Paul's view of his chains is this. Every problem can become an opportunity because it's a problem in Christ. When Paul looks at his particular problem, he says it's really served to advance the gospel his situation is happening in the plan of God so God's glory can be advanced. 
If you think everything is happening to you by chance, that this universe is a total orphanage and that you are the most lost orphan in it, you will react with bitterness and jealousy toward others who seem to get a better deal. You have the best deal God could give you. Christ is in you. Christ is for you. And you are not an orphan. Everything that happens to you must be turned for your good and God's glory. Can you hear the echoes of God's sovereignty in both of those quotes? Personally, I get anxious about a lot of things, but when something is hard, something is, hard is happening to any of my adult children, I feel especially out of control. I might not struggle as much about my own life as I used to, although I still do, but I sure do struggle when it comes to my children's well-being. So I'm not saying that God's sovereignty makes everything easy. We have to fight for faith to believe that God is sovereign. It's not a pat answer that we tell ourselves, and it's also not something we should throw out at hurting people in our attempt to make things better. It's something we must pray about. And we begin with our own hearts. We talk to God and we tell him about the things that make us anxious. We confess that he is king and acknowledge that he controls all things. It's not a magic phrase that we say to ourselves when fear strikes. It's a truth that we continually see throughout God's word. Be in his word. This is ammunition for the times of struggle. There will always be struggles this side of heaven, and yet God is even sovereign over that struggle, and he's in the struggle with you. Don't fight it by yourself. Acknowledge him in the midst of it. Now, you may be one of the few who don't personally struggle with anxiety, but I'm sure you must have people in your life who do. Pray about that too. Listen to understand before you throw out a bunch of antidotes. Know that God has sovereignly placed you in their life to help them with their fight for faith. Ask God how you can gently walk beside them and help usher them into greater faith. Perhaps you have questions about the world or about your life that trouble you. Uh, there's a lot going on right now. There's always been a lot going on, if, you're, if you know anything about history. But there is a lot going on right now. I won't deny that. But even just in your own individual life, maybe you have things that have happened to you or are happening to you that don't seem like a sovereign God would allow. The way to find comfort will not be to think that something outside of God is controlling things be it the world, in the world of men or devils, God reigns over all. None can stay his hand or thwart his will. You'll find this statement many times in the Bible. Take Ecclesiastes 5, 2 to heart. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. This is an admonition not to judge God, but to humble yourself before him, recognizing that he is God and you are not. For all the mysteries that you don't understand, and there's gonna be a lot, you can rest in his perfect plan. 
There's a government teacher that I like to follow on Instagram. Her name's Sharon McMahon, and she likes to inform people of truth about how the government works. So many times she's clearing up confusion that comes from social media and any number of false statements that are out there regarding our country that are coming from all the sides. And she often says, facts don't require your approval. How much more is this true of what God has revealed about himself in his word? The truth of who he is does not require anyone's approval. This theme of his sovereignty is throughout scripture. This is not up for debate. Someone is sovereign. If it's not God, then who do you think it is? Is he only sovereign when good things happen? Then who is sovereign when disaster strikes? Think that if you take some time to consider it as you're reading God's word, you'll conclude that it is always God who is controlling all things. One last thing I'll mention as a benefit of knowing that God is sovereign, you can live your life free to choose and know that God will direct you. What I'm not saying is do whatever you want because God will work it all out in the end anyway. What I am saying is that you don't need to agonize over God's will. If there's something you want to do that's not a sin and would not hinder you from glorifying God, then you are free to choose it. You can choose a college, a spouse, a move, a house, a career, a part-time job, a way to educate your children, or whatever you can do in good conscience. There are many things that don't have specific direction in God's word, but you can trust his sovereign will to unfold as you're moving in faith. And of course, it's wise to pray and ask for wisdom and to seek out godly counsel. But haven't you experienced starting out doing one thing and then God moving you in some particular way so that you end up doing something entirely different? My life is full of these stories, and I think yours probably is too. This is not God correcting our poor choices, but rather him directing all things according to his will. Sometimes we complicate things by stressing over choices. There are things we need to consider. We should be asking, will this choice hinder my witness for Christ in any way? Will this choice involve me compromising my faith in Christ? Will this choice hinder me from doing any of the things God has revealed in, as his specific will for me in his word? Things like giving generously, rejoicing, seeking first his kingdom, loving him or loving others. Beyond that, we can choose based on our specific interests, personalities, and all the ways God has made us unique. Some people will try to impose things on you that are not expressly in God's word and tell you that in order to be truly biblical, you must do something that they are prescribing. This is nothing new. It was even happening in the New Testament. They may have a verse or two that they pull out of the Bible and throw it at you as proof. Don't be fooled. This is another one of many reasons it's vitally important for you to regularly be reading God's word so you can know for yourself what God desires. And yes, even when we sin, God who is sovereign will still be at work. But as his children, as his loyal subjects, as his creation, it should be our aim to always live in a way that would please him. And for all the ways that we don't, I, you, can, you guys will know what I'm going to say. We can repent and look to Jesus, believe the gospel, 
and keep walking forward in faith as we trust our sovereign God.